G'day and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. We're currently two-thirds of the way through the Kelly saga in the Bush Rangers theme. This week in episode 13 we'll finish off talking about the bank holdup at Euroa and the responses to the letter that Ned and Joe wrote. As usual, supporting material for this Euroa episode can be found on the Australian Histories podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and there are contact options on that webpage too, including a link to the Facebook page or the Twitter account. I post a few generally history-related materials on those accounts each fortnight if that's your thing. Have a look. For those of you just discovering the Australian History Podcasts at this episode, if you'd like to get the background story that leads up to this robbery first, you can start the Kelly series at episode 2 or 3 and really get to know the Kellys and the issues in the northeast of Victoria at this time. For those of you who are ready to find out about the bank holdup at Euroa, here we go. Episode 13, Euroa, Part 2. So just to quickly recap, in that last episode, the Kellys had identified the best target for the robbery, found an ideal base camp nearby where they could gather a captive audience together and begin their PR campaign, and they had taken the opportunity to write a long letter to a politician they thought would be sympathetic to their cause in the northeast. Gathering all the station workers and visitors into a lock-up, for Joe to guard in their absence, the rest of the gang headed off to Euroa to hold up the bank. From the evidence of witnesses involved, we know the Euroa raid unfolded something like this. Around 4pm, the smartly dressed Kelly gang arrived at the bank. Remember, they had all helped themselves to fancy new clothes from Gould's cart back at Faithful's station. While Steve made his way around the back of the building, Ned and Dan approached the front door with the cheque from the station overseer. Some sources say Bradley and some say Booth, but one of them anyway, opened the door slightly and said, The office is closed for the day. Ned responded pleadingly, I have a cheque from Mr Macaulay, and he said he was sure you'd let me have the money. And with his foot now in the door gap, they forced their way in, bailing up Booth and Bradley, the bank clerk and accountant, and seizing the bank revolver from the bench. Ned then went into the manager's office and bailed him up too. The bank's manager, Robert Scott, lived on the premises with his family and he was in the internal office with his head down finishing for the day so that he and his boys could attend the funeral of the poor lad recently killed during a riding accident. Steve had entered the building from the back with no trouble but he ran into the manager's maid, Fanny Shaw. Amazingly, she had gone to school with Steve, and so she recognised him. At this point, though, he was still not known as a Kelly gang member, so she wouldn't have been concerned about a Kelly raid, but probably just highly surprised at seeing her old friend in the building. She asked what he was doing there, and he told her, I have some business to do with the boss. After the whole episode was over and the police had interviewed the witnesses, it was Fanny Shaw that provided the identification of Steve Hart as the fourth member of the Kelly gang, up till that point still unknown. The Kelly boys gathered all the cash from the strong room, but one drawer remained locked. On asking for the key, Scott was reluctant to be helpful, and he told them he didn't know where it was. 
So Ned began making his way into the adjoining family residence. Scott now became animated and strongly objected. Jones quotes him saying, Kelly, if you go in there, I'll strike you, whatever the consequences may be. But they all continued in and they presented themselves to the family. Then some really interesting interactions took place. When the Kellys entered the room with the women folk, the nursemaid at first took fright, exclaiming, Oh God, it is the Kellys! Remember, they were all the talk of the town over these last weeks, feared as ruffians and cold-blooded killers on the run. But Mrs Scott was quite calm in her surprise, asking, Are you Ned Kelly? and taking the answer in her stride. Mr Scott continued to be belligerent, not keen on cooperating and refusing to find the missing key, so Ned asked Susie Scott to help. When the keys were recovered, the gang were able to gather up a further amount of cash, and they netted over £2,260 from the Euroa hold-up. They chose to remove a number of deed and mortgage papers too, probably hoping the banks had no further record of debts owed by the poor in the district. As mentioned earlier, the Scots had been preparing to go to a funeral, so there was a fair bit of activity going on in the house. Susie Scott didn't seem at all frightened and actually appeared charmed when Ned spoke to her mother kindly, saying, Don't be frightened. Nothing will happen to you. I have a mother of my own. She calmed the nurse and kept the children from any worry, saying they would all just do as the Kellys said and everything would be all right. Indeed, to her husband's amazement, she had quite a bit of conversation with Ned, verging on flirting, telling him he was a much more handsome and well-dressed man than she had expected, and by no means the ferocious ruffian she imagined him to be. Scott later recorded in his evidence, no doubt through gritted teeth, quote, My wife and family, contrary to my expectations, took the visit very calmly, unquote. Ned then advised the Scots they would need to accompany him on an outing away from the bank. Susie, currently dressed soberly, insisted on changing first and when Ned indulged her, she seems to have been delighted at the opportunity to dress up in her new outfit, replete with lace and ribbons. With 14 of them in the bank party now, Ned told Scott to ready the family cart as they'd need more seats. And let's not forget, actually, that young Beecroft was still in the hawker's cart somewhere in the yard waiting, not taking the opportunity to escape, it seems. But the now embarrassed and surly Scott said, No, I won't, and my groom is away. Do it yourself. And luckily this amused Ned, and he responded, Well, I will do it myself, and he went out to ready the extra cart. When Susie was happy with her appearance and the buggy was ready to roll, they helped the women and children into the various carts, along with Scott and the bank employees, and they all headed out of town at a good clip. Once again, Ned and the boys had largely showed themselves to be firm but chivalrous, particularly to the women. When Susie's elder son accidentally left behind the bundled baby's provisions, Ned retrieved them so that the little fella had the needed supplies for the journey. So in a procession of carts, including Scott's buggy, they took Robert and Susie Scott, her mother-in-law, seven children, the maid, the nanny, and the two bank officials back to Faithful's Creek. The Euroa station master's wife apparently saw them all passing by, assuming the bank people must be off for a picnic. 
When they passed the cemetery where the funeral was taking place, the grieving mother there also noticed them, and she was distressed at their indecent haste while her poor son's funeral was underway. Sitting with Ned for the journey, Scott's demeanour softened, and they chatted all the way to Faithful's Creek. Once again, Ned took the opportunity to show his warm side and to explain his story. Later, Scott was to say that Ned treated me personally very well and did not use a single rude word to Mrs Scott. Once again, Ned was proving to be quite charismatic and impressive once the crass work of the robbery was over, and it was a great start for his charm campaign with the public. On their arrival at Faithful's Creek, Ned checked for the agreed signal from Joe that indicated all was still well at the station, and then he took the bank family and the employees on into the lock-up. The women and children were allowed to wait in the house. The captives now numbered about 40 people bailed up and under guard, and once again Mrs Fitzgerald and the kitchen staff there prepared to feed them. Ned spoke to them all again of the letter he had penned to Mr Cameron and his hope for justice, making his case for a more sympathetic view of the gang, and as they prepared to leave, they put on a short but very impressive stunt horse riding display for the prisoners. The entertainment came to an end, and Ned now gave a stern speech, warning them to wait three hours before unlocking the menfolk from the shed, or sounding any alarm, unless they wished to be responsible for a great harm to be visited on Macaulay, the overseer, should they disobey and then the gang rode off into the sunset, as they say. During their talks, the bank manager Scott had asked where they would go, and Ned had answered him, quote, The country belongs to us. We can go where we like. Unquote. And that indeed seemed so. Now, just to return for a moment to earlier that same day, I did mention in the last episode that Joe had bailed up another arrival while the boys were in town. This arrival was a telegraph repairman named Watt. He had been sent on the train to survey the telegraph lines and discover where and why the communication was down, and to repair them. Now, of course, we know that the Kellys had deliberately disabled them before heading off to Euroa. But I love this detail. You most certainly cannot get your phone lines attended to like that in modern Australia anymore. Indeed, you spend more time in the telco online phone help queue just trying to report a fault, then it took that repairman to turn up by train in 1878. Oh, for the good old days, eh? Watt was chatting about his task to a fellow passenger on the train, who just happened to be the police magistrate from Benella, named Wyatt. Wyatt assisted Watt by monitoring the lines on one side of the track, while Watt looked out on the other. When they found the break near Faithfuls Creek Station, Watt had the train slow down and he then jumped off to inspect and repair the lines. It was not long after that that he was invited up to the house for a forced spell indoors by Joe. Wyatt, of course, stayed on board, completing his journey, but he was concerned about how such damage might have occurred. He got off at Euroa and he undertook the business that he went there for, but remaining curious about the telegraph lines, he hired a buggy and he drove back towards Faithful's Creek. He was unable to follow those telegraph lines all the way back though, as the cart tracks beside the railway tracks did peter out, so he had to turn back and catch his uh, return train before he'd discovered anything useful. But his suspicions that perhaps the Kellys had damaged the lines continued to needle him. On his return trip, he had the train stop 
where the wires were broken, and he noted with surprise that Watt had not done any work on them during all that time. It was now about 7pm, and the Kellys were actually still at Faithfuls Creek, eating dinner. They saw the train stop, and they saw Wyatt climb down and inspect the lines, gather up some of the smashed pieces, and then climb back aboard and continue his journey. So the gang would have known then that Discovery was not too far away. When Wyatt reached the next town, he told the station master there to discreetly get word to the Melbourne police that the Kellys were about. He then continued on to Benalla, where he headed straight for the police barracks there and reported his find to Nicholson and Sadlier in person. Nicholson and Sadlier were just then preparing to head north to Albury, expecting to find the Kellys trying to cross into New South Wales, based on the dodgy local rumours and the earlier advice given by Quinn. They agreed with Wyatt that the gang had probably cut the lines near Euroa, but they considered that it might have actually been done as a distraction, intended to draw the police there while they made for the border. All the whispered false intelligence may have helped them come to that conclusion, but rather than wisely gathering any evidence from the cut telegraph site and checking if any of the workers at the nearby Faithfuls Creek station had noticed anything, as any modern police force might do, they instead advised Wyatt, quote, We know what it means, Mr Wyatt. It will not influence our plans, unquote, and they headed directly off to Albury on their hunch that they would catch the gang there. Standish did not get the message sent from the northeast until much later in the evening, and a special train did not depart Melbourne until after 1.30am. By then, of course, the Kellys were well away from the area. As you can imagine, the media and the public were scathing in calling out the police incompetence again related to this information. But remember, the reporting was all done after the event, when hindsight actually shone a light on the faults. I'm guessing if they'd gone to Faithfuls Creek and the gang had crossed into New South Wales on that night, as their earlier intelligence had indicated, they would have been equally criticised. Nicholson and Sadlier did seem like arrogant gits in their response to Wyatt, though, but it really would have been a difficult call. In a period of less than immediate communication, vast distances, a plethora of hideouts, and a quite impressive rumour mill operating in the Kellys' favour, to imagine that the police should always know the best course of action. But it was just that they seemed so unfocused, scattering in all directions, unable to discern quality information from bait, and acting on their personal assumptions rather than operating in any methodical investigative manner. So the papers had a field day comparing the gang's smooth operation with the bumbling police pursuit. A cartoon was soon published in the Melbourne Punch that had Ned sitting on the Premier's chair. The PR offensive was making some headway already, elevating the gang's status and drawing at least reluctant respect from many quarters. Some said the Euroa robbery showed the gang had an intelligent grasp of strategy and in some ways a keen sense of public relations, with one regional newspaper remarking, quote, four bush boys have outwitted the whole police force, unquote. The Age reported on the 11th, quote, the robbery was altogether a most audacious one and at the same time was cleverly planned, for although it was committed in broad daylight, everything was so well managed that the residents of the township had not the slightest idea of what was being done, unquote. So note there the contrast with the police delays. Extra police and black trackers were not sent on the special train from Melbourne until well after midnight. 
But still, to me, the gang's plans seemed overly complicated and very risky with all the people in the know, and the potential for sympathisers to be recognised or found out in all that time. I mean, all the people that wandered onto that station in the course of an ordinary day, it was like Burke Street. And the odds of someone recognising someone were surely pretty high, given that it was close to their own neighbourhood. And indeed, Steve did come across a school friend at the bank manager's house. So, to me, there seemed a high possibility for it all to go horribly wrong the way it had at Stringybark Creek, with the chance of more loss of lives. In my head, the very act of trying to justify your innocence and plead unfounded persecution by the authorities, despite your reluctance for a life of crime, by actually taking hostages and staging a bank robbery, it's a little ironic. However, it was a success of sorts for the gang. It did raise their profile as dashing bushrangers, and it began turning the burgeoning Kelly legend from one of criminal and murderous outlaws to smart and charismatic forced outlaws. A little later in investigating the robbery, with more focus than the police it seems, the National Bank officials later discovered discrepancies in the books at Euroa, which showed that Scott had been using the bank funds to maintain his own lifestyle, and he opted to quietly leave the employee of the bank soon after. So not all the criminals in the region were bearded Kellys then. Some simply got to walk away from their crimes, without years of harassment and jail terms. With Australia recently undertaking a royal commission into banking misbehaviour and devastating and shocking revelations becoming public every day, I imagine that we will be less shocked than the Kellys' contemporaries to learn that there'd been some dodgy behaviour going on at the Euroa National Bank. There really was something in the Kellys' complaint about a two-tier justice system operating. Sadly, that Euroa Bank building was demolished in 1974, and the Faithful's Creek homestead burnt down in the 1939 Black Friday bushfires, and apparently only stones remain there to identify the site now. With Kelly sympathisers again leaking false reports, and groups of riders laying false trails all around the area, which the police finally noticed the following day, they exhausted themselves going in circles while the gang had already made their way back into the well-known hideouts near Greta. Unable to capture the Kellys, or to even have any idea really about where they should look, the government now sent troops and more armed police into the northeast to secure the banks and other potential targets. Nicholson was sent back to Melbourne, and Hare was brought back and put in charge again. After laying low for a few weeks, the gang began to distribute the funds amongst friends and family, those who'd stood by them after the shootings. Previously, indebted persons were now able to pay off their debts and were making purchases with unusual amounts of cash. Jones reports one person paying for drinks with 15 shillings worth of sixpences. Meanwhile, soon afterwards in Melbourne, Cameron received the red ink letter that Ned and Joe had written for him to read in Parliament. Like the proverbial hot potato, Cameron passed it straight to the government, not wishing to be in any way associated with Kelly or his cause. The Argus noted, quote, Mr Cameron, it will be remembered, put a question in the Assembly to the Chief Secretary as to whether inquiries had been made as to the cause of the outbreak. And very much to his surprise, he had been honoured with the outlaw's confidence, unquote. 
When the knowledge of the letter became public, Cameron vehemently denied any sympathy for the Kellys. Standish, having read Sadlier's copy of Ned's letter, advised Premier Berry that, quote, it contains a tissue of falsehoods and makes various threats. I think it inadvisable that publicity should be given to such a production, and I should recommend that Mr Cameron should be advised not to publish the letter, unquote. Graham Berry himself reportedly thought the letter clever and straightforward. Now that's not how I would describe it, having tried to read and record it last week. It was very convoluted, I thought. But, though some reporters did read it, it was not published in its entirety in Ned's lifetime, with only a few heavily edited sections being quoted in the papers over the coming days. The Daily Telegraph described, quote, Kelly's morbid vanity and frightful threats, unquote, much to Ned's frustration, while the Argus noted the letter as the work of, quote, a clever, illiterate person, with the object of obtaining public sympathy. So they were right on the button there then. But of course, in trying to get the general public on side, the gang had just added another outrage to their CV, the bank robbery at Euroa. This may not have been a helpful activity to support Ned's argument about being forced into criminal actions, but their behaviour during the robbery did help promote the romantic myth of the bushranger. Susie Scott had thought him dapper and handsome, with an attractive bearing. Mr. Scott thought him, quote, a splendid specimen of humankind, tall, active, athletic, and rather handsome, unquote. So with witnesses like that, things were at least looking up, perhaps. In reporting the Euroa hold-up, the papers ran various lines, from very negative to begrudgingly positive. In Jones's book, he records the Herald reporting the letter quite substantially, quoting Ned's complaint that he and his family were continually dogged by the police, and noting, quote, the outrages committed on his sister and the unmerited punishment of his mother, unquote. The Herald even repeated Ned's account that neither he nor his comrades intended to commit murder at Stringybark Creek, noting the circumstances that led to those shootings. And they further reported an important part of Ned's message, quote, the writer does not ask for mercy for himself and admits that he knows he is outside the pale of mercy. He, however asks that the grievous wrongs inflicted on his sisters may be righted and that justice may be done to his mother, brother-in-law and another man convicted with them, all of whom he declares have been improperly imprisoned on perjured evidence." Unquote. So while a few of the messages were being disseminated and some sections of the community were now getting a broader picture, Ned was very upset at not having the whole thing published and the Parliament forced to investigate. Cameron turned out not to be a champion of the ordinary man. By now, Ned must have realised he could not rely on the sympathy of anyone associated with the government, and this may have been a dangerous thought as he began considering future options. It became clear to the Victorian public, though, that while Ned was the strength of the gang, they obviously enjoyed wide local support in the northeast. So a little comprehension about no smoke without fire must have begun too amongst the ordinary people. Causes of the Kelly outbreak were now becoming clearer and more understandable and the police in the area were more and more recognised as adding to the problem in the first place while seemingly unable to step up and solve it now. The reward for shopping the Kellys now increased to £4,000. 
An ordinary working man's wage might be about £100 a year in this era, so it's just a massive amount of money. Now, while the local sympathisers were likely running into the hundreds in the area, a figure quoted by one anonymous correspondent to a local newspaper, it should be remembered that there were many others in the neighbourhood who were not Kelly associates or family friends and who did not indicate any sympathy for the Kellys. To many, they were a local scourge, larrikins and thugs who probably deserved what they got. Many of these people may have been families and individuals targeted, bullied and intimidated by the Kellys and the wider greeter mob over the years. Superintendent Hare, who came north to take over the hunt after Euroa, wrote in his memoir, I have often spoken to respectable farmers and pointed out to them that it was their duty to assist the police. And their reply was, I want to stand aloof from everything connected to the Kellys. If they hear the police have been at my place, my stack will be burnt down, my fences broken, and probably all my cattle and horses will be stolen. So the Kellys were formidable and troublesome neighbours to some. And of course, the squatters in the area would not have been fans either. But despite the Kelly backing not being 100% of people in the northeast, the very substantial support does indicate that social issues and displeasure with the governance in the area was a bigger issue than the government acknowledged, and they would have been wise to reflect more on the meaning of that, to avoid the trouble continuing in the months to come. So the public responses in all their complexity rumbled on in Melbourne, and the police continued on their tried and so far unsuccessful path. Unable to catch the gang after this latest outrage, they turned again to the idea that they must stop the community from supporting them. The only way they knew how to do this was just to press down harder. No nuance, no skill at recruiting the hearts and minds of a community. No idea it might be in everyone's interest to investigate and begin addressing the local concerns, the injustices and perceptions in the northeast, to bring these communities back into the fold, or to try and defuse the situation. Instead, warrants were issued under the Outlawry Act and the arrests began soon afterwards, with a concerted push in early January. Though no real evidence was available against any arrested, except them being known as associates, relatives or friends of the Kellys. To be fair, there was some disquiet in the police force about simply resorting to the old ineffective inflammatory tactics here. Standish, of course, thought it was a great idea, but Sadlier thought it unwise. It's interesting to ponder. Could Sadlier have come up with another approach that might de-escalate the developing fury? With the locals seemingly impervious to threat or bribe, suspected Cali sympathisers were brought before a magistrate, including Wild Wright, Jimmy Quinn, the Lloyds, Frank Harty, Pat Quinn, Ben Gould and many, many others. They were remanded without charge until they were forced to release them, but the police would simply round them up again the following week, and this went on and on well into April. Extra troopers were sent to the northeast to bolster the guards at Beechworth Jail. So inflammatory were these tactics that the gates were reinforced at the cost of £700 for fear of a siege being mounted to break the prisoners out. Though Hare had replaced Nicholson in leading the hunt after the hold-up, his interest in actively pursuing them didn't seem great, and the Kellys remained comfortably hidden in their hills hideout. Hare preferred the tactic of pressuring the local sympathisers and of recruiting potential agents that might bring in information to the police and eventually be won over by the reward. 
As the arrests went on and on, the remaining locals banded together to bring in the crops of the jailed men, and the gang, spending the last of the Euroa money on defence counsel for their friends, realised they would again need more funds. So they had Aaron Sherritt leaked to the police that they would be robbing again, hinting that Goulburn, New South Wales, might be the target, and that they had pressured him to join them, but that he had declined. Sherritt made his way to Benalla, and he coyly divulged this information to Hare. Hare recorded, quote, He was a splendid man, tall, strong, hardy, but a most outrageous scoundrel. I had never seen him till that evening, and somehow or other I made a most wonderful impression on him. I saw that my influence over him was very great, unquote. <laughs> so... Hare was convinced that Aaron was acting for the police in this matter, and he rewarded him on the spot with two pounds for this robbery information. They also spoke about the £4,000 reward being his, if he could bring the police to the gang, and that his good friend Joe could be saved. Sherritt told Hare he would help them, telling him about the visits the gang made to family members, and he agreed to stake out with them the next time a visit was on the cards. In the meantime, Hare set about ensuring the police were in place to capture the gang at the border crossings before they could leave the state for Goulburn. It seems that right from the beginning, Hare felt confident that Aaron was working with the police and against the gang. Other police felt more suspicious. And it would seem at this point that the Kellys were using Aaron as a conduit for feeding the desired information to the police. That is, he was giving the information the gang wanted fed. But his loyalty and intent came under a cloud over time. It was hard to tell who Aaron was working for. But for now, the Kellys were making plans for a second robbery, and it seemed their friend Aaron was assisting by distracting the police. So we'll wrap up this episode here. The Euroa bank robbery was financially helpful for the gang, and to some extent a PR coup but it had failed to get their story published in full to the wider audience. And the funds had been distributed and were now exhausted. So next episode we'll see how the rather audacious robbery plan at Faithful's Creek blows out into a full-scale, over-the-top production across the border, raising the ire of the New South Wales government too, and giving Ned a second chance at publishing his then-expanded missive on the corruption of the police, the government and the persecution of the poor old Kellys. So I look forward to exploring that in the next episode with you in a fortnight. So just before we finish up, I thought I'd mention we probably have just a few more episodes before we wrap up the Kelly saga altogether. And the most amazing and best known aspects of the story are still to come. The last stand at Glenrowan, the armour, the court case, along with some really interesting elements that you may not be aware of. So I am looking forward to those coming up soon. And then we'll consider what other interesting stories to look at next, post-Kelly. Remember to check for the additional information for this episode on the Australian Histories Podcast website, australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Take care now, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll talk to you again in a fortnight. Cheers. Cheers.